Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. This week, the podcast is again a little shorter than normal, and given the absence of meaningful amount of news items, is, I think, going to be the only one of the year which does not primarily concentrate on investment trusts, but focuses instead on the outlook for financial markets uh, more generally. In a moment, I'll be discussing the year just gone and the year ahead with Tom Stevenson, Investment Director at Fidelity International, the Boston-based family-owned fund management business whose global reach and research resources are among the best in the game. Before that, I pick out some of the key events that may impact on asset class returns in the next 12 months. Because of the New Year holiday, it was a short week for the financial markets with little in the way of news, as I've said. Suffice it to say that the first week of trading saw both bond and equity markets give back a little of the Q4 Santa rally gains that helped 2023 to finish on a much more buoyant note than seemed likely at one stage. Despite a sharp and continuous increase in interest rates, uh, the year turned out in the end to be a positive one for the equity markets and an extraordinary roller coaster one for bonds. A widely expected global recession failed to materialize, oil prices helpfully fell, and Bitcoin, to the surprise of some, surged higher despite, or perhaps because of, Sam Bankman Fried, the genial crypto fraudster, going to jail. Gold also posted a double digit gain. One big question for 2024 is whether any of the things that the majority expected the start of the year to happen in 2023, as interest rates surged, and that included a global economic slowdown, uh, will now materialise this year instead. While investors ended the year betting heavily that interest rates will fall further and faster than the Federal Reserve and other central banks say they are expecting, given sharp declines in inflation, We know that there are lags of up to two years before the effects of higher interest rates work their way through the real economy. So you would think that their impact maybe still has to show up somewhere. Uh, One factor that may be relevant here, however, is the fact that there will be several important elections in the next 12 months. They include countries that account for 40% of the world's population and 80% of its global GDP. Suffice it to say that incumbents will be straining every sinew to keep their economies ticking over by fair means or foul. And who's to say whether or not the populations of these countries will vote for pain today or pain deferred? All this will be playing out against continued conflict and geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, Ukraine and Asia, with obvious potential consequences for commodity prices. Also of note will be a series of antitrust trials in the United States involving Google, Meta, stroke Facebook, and others which may have a bearing on the ability of the Magnificent Seven to continue their remarkable domination of stock market returns for another 12 months. Meanwhile, the US yield curve has now been inverted for 15 months, one of the longest such periods in history. If it's still inverted in May, only the run-up to the great stock market crash of 1929 will have experienced a longer such phase of short-term interest rates being higher than the yield on bonds in longer maturities which, if nothing else, gives pause for thought. All this, of course, remains to play out. Turning back to this week, the first of the year, most leading equity indices sold off, with the all-world index down 1.7%, the S&P 500 off 1.5%, FTSE All Share down 0.8%, and the Nikkei in Japan off 
0.25%. NASDAQ, home to some of the big tech companies which dominated the US market's performance in 2023 in remarkable fashion, kicked off this year with a 3.25% decline. Both conventional gilts and index-linked also sold off pretty much across the board, with yields rising at the long end in particular. Against this background, the Investment Trust Index, unsurprisingly, was down 1.85%. Losers outnumbered gainers by around 25 to 1. And notable gains were posted by Biopharma Credit, up 10% on the back of finally resolving problems with its largest loan. By Hypnosis Songs, up 7% on hopes of a resolution to its complex valuation and management issues and two trusts, Seraphim Space and Digital Nine Infrastructure, whose discounts are more than 50% have the unhappy distinction of being among the widest in the investment trust universe. Well, they at least had something to celebrate this week with a notable gain. At the other end of the scale, there were significant declines in some of the best performers of the last few weeks. You know, the re-rating that has taken place since the middle of October. These decliners included Chrysalis down 9%, Scottish Mortgage down nearly 7%, the two tech trusts, Polar Capital and Allianz Technology, and the global smaller companies' vehicles, Smithson and Edinburgh Worldwide, all off around 5%. Is that a portent of things to come for the year? We'll see. On the news front, among just a small handful of announcements, there were updates from RIT Capital, RTW Biotech Opportunities, Biopharma Credit, as I mentioned, and uh, a couple of the larger private equity trusts. In the new longer weekly email, we now send to subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle every weekend. I comment briefly on those, along with a closer look at the UK smaller companies sector. And there are links to our usual comprehensive summary of the week's RNS announcements and NAV share price and discount movements. All part of the service. This week's profile for subscribers covers Schroeder Asian Total Return, ticker ATR, and that will be followed next week by a review of Witten ticker WTAN, the Global Multi-Manager Trust. Thank you finally to all those who've written to me with kind remarks about the latest annual investment trust handbook, which came out uh, just before Christmas, and which I discussed on Asset TV a few days ago. That video recording, and yes, I have since had a haircut, you'll be glad to know, will be out on Monday. So earlier this week, I had the chance to catch up with an old mate and colleague of mine, I have to say, uh, Tom Stevenson, who is now an investment director at Fidelity International. But back in the day when print newspapers were still a thing, he and I worked together for a while on one of the illustrious national newspapers. Not quite as illustrious today as it was back then. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. A great opportunity to talk to you about the markets and about what you and your colleagues at Fidelity think about where we are in the global market cycle. And then we'll go on to talk about investment trusts in particular, which you've always had a long-standing interest, I know. So first of all, let's just kick off. We've had a, well, let's be honest, we've had a couple of very turbulent and not particularly profitable years. But in the end, uh, 2023 didn't turn out that bad after all the sort of doom and gloom we had going into the year. What's your take on uh, what happened last year and how it all panned out? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you on your podcast. It's a long while ago that we used to work together, but uh, it's very, very nice to be chatting through the markets with you again. 2023 was an unexpected year. I mean, if you roll back 12 months ago to what we were looking at at the beginning of last year, almost everything that we were looking for didn't actually materialise. So maybe there's a lesson in that for, for those of us who are called upon at this time of year to make forecasts for the rest of the year. But yeah, I mean, we were looking towards a recession. Uh, I mean, I certainly, and I wasn't alone, expected interest rates to be falling sort of by the middle of last year. Uh, and of course, that isn't what happened. And we moved into a different phase when 
the narrative changed to a higher for longer when it came to inflation and, and, and interest rates. And that was taken badly by the market in the middle of the year. But then towards the end of the year, as we know, the last couple of months, we had a big turnaround in sentiment triggered by an apparent change of thinking, really, by the central banks and the Federal Reserve in particular. And a lot of the remarkable performance that we saw last year was really skewed towards the last two months of the year. And I think the S&P 500 ended up 26% higher for the year as a whole, but more than half of that came in the last two months. Indeed, it did. So that's what we call a a Santa rally, if you like, a a pre-Christmas rally. And they are quite common, surprisingly common, I think, uh, if we look back on history. And it was the speed of the change in sentiment that was, uh, I think, notable, as you say. But now, as far as one can interpret the runes, the markets seem to be saying now they're all gung-ho for a lot of interest rate cuts this year from the Federal Reserve and maybe even, Lord help us, the Bank of England as well. Is that what uh, you and your colleagues are expecting this year or... Uh, are we going to get what we uh, thought we were going to get last year? Are we going to get it this year instead? Those seem to be the two schools of thought at the moment. Yes. Well, I mean, I think in some ways we might well get what we expected last year. I mean, our base case, our central view is that we will probably have some kind of a recession this year. It will probably be a mild one. I mean, we had a look at various scenarios for 2024 and we kind of attached probabilities to those, which is really the only sensible way for an investor to work is to look at the various options and attach a likelihood to those various outcomes materialising. And far and away, our base case, to which we attach about a 60% probability, is that we will have a mild recession. And the other percentages, what it's worth, are 20% attached to possibly what the market is really looking for, which is a soft landing. So falling inflation, falling interest rates, but without breaking the economy, if you like. And then at the extremes, we have a deep recession and no landing at all. So things continuing to grow strongly and we attach just 10% to each of those. So really, we do think that mild recession is the most likely outcome. And that should allow central banks to ease monetary policy uh, as the year goes on, probably starting in about the middle of the year. But I think the market is anticipating more rate cuts than the central banks are currently. I think the, the Fed is talking about three quarter point rate cuts next year, and the market is probably pricing in twice as many. So who knows where we'll end up. But I think that the direction of travel is probably right. But the extent and the uh, the number of cuts, I think, is the uncertainty. So that sort of implies that inflation will be more or less brought under control, but we're not going back to the old era of very low inflation. That seems to be implicit in what you're expecting. And that will be quite an achievement if that's the case. If inflation comes down and stays down, that will be quite something. Because historically, of course, we tend to see inflation after a big rise like we've just seen. It tends to have a sort of second wave, doesn't it, if you look back into history. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts around that idea? Well, I mean, you're right that historically that central banks tend not to be able to land the plane to get this fabled soft landing because it's extremely difficult to do. And I think that the danger probably that we see is that just as central banks were slow to see inflation coming and slow to raise interest rates, they will probably have left it too late to cut them and that inflation may well undershoot just as much as it overshot on the way up. But you're also right to point out that very often we do get this second wave. And I guess central banks are extremely mindful that they don't allow that to happen because, you know, in terms of their credibility and the reputational risk of allowing that to happen, they will clearly not want to to allow that to happen. 
So just going back to 2023 for a moment, the other remarkable feature of 2023 was the extent to which I think greater than at any time I can remember, which was the returns of the best markets, in other words, the US market in particular, and indeed the World Index, was dominated by just a very small handful of companies now known as the Magnificent Seven, and we probably can list them all very easily, but anyway, the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, and so on. And they accounted for, I don't know, something like 25-30% of the total World Index return, which is a remarkable figure, really. I noticed one broker this week pointed out that um, it's all very well calling the Magnificent Seven, but uh, all they did last year was catch up with what they'd lost in the previous year. So they went down 50% the previous year, and then they were uh, up 100% or whatever it was this year. Something dramatic, anyway. A large gain for them. So they just got back what they'd already given up. But uh, can you remember a year like this in which it's been so dominated by just a few very large uh, capitalised companies? Well, it has happened before, maybe not quite to the extent that we've seen. But I mean, you and I will both remember the dot-com bubble nearly 25 years ago now. But I mean, then the market was was dominated by a small number of tech stocks, not quite to the extent that we have today. But then if you go back even further, if you go back to the early 1970s, of course, with the so-called Nifty 50 the US market was dominated by a relatively small group of high quality defensive buy and hold stocks. It was bigger. The number was bigger. It wasn't under 10, as the name suggests, nifty 50, you know, but it was a relatively narrow market. So we do periodically get these moments when the leadership of the market is extremely narrow. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at the headline figures, I think it can be quite deceptive as to what's going on. Because underneath the surface, over the last two or three years, the market has really not been as volatile as it has looked the last two years. As you say, a big fall and then a big recovery. But that was really due to those seven stocks. If you look at the equal weighted S&P 500 index, so the measure which treats all 500 companies exactly the same, 0.2 of a percent per company, it's actually gone sideways for the last two years. And if you strip out the valuations of those seven stocks, it makes the US market look a lot less highly valued than maybe on the surface it does, which I think is quite encouraging. If you're looking for reasons why this long bull market that we've had since the financial crisis might still have legs, I think that is one of them. Because if you strip those valuations out, the valuation of the market as a whole is it's not cheap, but it's also it's not excessive. Right. But that, of course, raises a very interesting doctrinal and practical question for those of us who are investing or people uh, consult for perhaps advice on how to invest. And that is, as a firm, Fidelity has uh, obviously a lot of actively managed funds and also has a passive fund side as well. And the question is, well, what's the best way to manage your money in these circumstances? Because last year, as you said, you could have invested in an equal-weighted US market ETF or world market ETF, and you would have done pretty averagely, to be honest. Or you could have gone with the market-weighted index, and uh, you'd have done very well. So is it a case of horses for courses, or is one of these two methods uh, superior to the other, do you think? Well, I think it changes over time. And I mean, if, if you looked over recent years when the market has been dominated by that small handful of companies, it's been extremely difficult for an active manager to beat the market because almost by definition, an active manager was likely to be underweight those stocks because they're so big. And, you know, almost certainly you would have been underweight and they've performed so well that you would have underperformed the market. It's been a very difficult market for active managers. I suspect that that may not be the case going forward. It may well be that the market continues to broaden out 
as it did actually at the end of last year. That that rally at the end of the last year was a broader rally than it had been. And I think that it, it may well be that stock picking is more fruitful as an investment approach than it has been. Yeah. And as you say, there are years when that is definitely the case. Over the medium longer term, it's very hard to beat an index, obviously, as an active manager. But there are years when it, it is possible. I remember 2000 as a case in point after the internet bubble. And I remember talking to Anthony Bolton, one of your distinguished fund managers at Fidelity. And he was, you know, a very uh, unemotional investor. But he was positively excited about the opportunities that arose in uh, 2000 because, as you said, there was this disparity between a market dominated by one sector and that created a lot of opportunities for an active manager in, in terms of stock picking. But uh, just looking across the whole piece, the active fund managers you have at Fidelity, I'm sure they're fairly optimistic about the future. They tend to be. That's the nature of the game. But is it not the case that these days active managers really do have to make a case in the face of the competition that they have from passive vehicles, in other words, index funds and ETFs uh, increasingly? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, an active management approach is by its nature a more expensive way of investing in the market. It requires more analysis and boots on the ground to do the work that's required. And in order to justify the higher costs of that, you need to generate the performance. And as we've discussed, that's not been easy in recent years. And I think that that is reflected in the money flows, which we're seeing. You know, a lot of money has moved into passive investing. And I don't think it's an either or situation. I think there is a case for investing in both ways. And maybe you have a core of passive funds at the heart of your portfolio. And then you use a kind of satellite approach to add some value where you know, in particular markets where uh, active management, it's easier to add value with active management. I mean, I think we've been talking a lot about the US market. It's quite difficult to add value in, in the US market, not impossible, but more difficult. I think in, in certain other arenas, emerging market investing, smaller company investing, it's easier to add value through active management. Indeed, that's certainly what the record shows. Well, before we talk about uh, investment trusts, which are, of course, by nature, all actively managed, let's just talk about are there any regions, countries or sectors where Fidelity has a particular strong feeling that maybe there is scope to add value in the coming 12 months? I put you on the spot like that. I mean, you said you've got a 60% base case. Are there any particular areas within the world market that you think have perhaps more potential than others relative to the benchmark, of course? Well, I think if you look at the valuations of various different markets uh, around the world, there is quite a significant divergence. I mean, we talked about the US being quite a highly rated market, largely on the back of those magnificent seven stocks. But at the other end of the scale, there are some markets which are barely half as expensive, just in pure price to earnings measurements as the US market. So the UK, for example, is currently trading on about 11 times expected earnings. The Chinese market is a different case and it's a specific case and it has its own specific issues and, and problems, but is even cheaper than that. And there are good reasons why a market like the UK should be cheaper than the US. The composition of the FTSE 100 is very different from the composition of the S&P 500, far fewer technology stocks. It's a much more defensive market and that's not helped it in the last years. It's heavily weighted towards commodities and oil and gas and pharmaceuticals, you know, quite sort of defensive sectors. But ultimately, there is a price for everything. And, you know, there is a strong argument, I think, that the UK market is fundamentally undervalued. It offers investors a very attractive yield 
more than 4%, for example. So at some point, you have to weigh up cost and value. And I think that the UK might look reasonably interesting this year. Japan did look interesting a year ago. I think that it had a fantastic year last year. Maybe a lot of that has now been priced in. I think Europe looks quite interesting, again, on valuation terms. It does face, I think, more economic challenges than maybe other areas in the world. Uh, I think we're probably looking at a longer and deeper recession in Europe. But again, it's on about 13 times expected earnings, so much cheaper than the US. And of course, the European market also has quite a small number of dominant companies, which tend to be a different kind of dominant company. They're in the luxury business, goods business a lot. So uh, that's another common feature they have. Do you have a view within the house about value against growth or small caps against large caps sort of style factors? How much does that uh, feature in your thinking? Well, it's a very interesting question. And it brings us back to this assessment of the Magnificent Seven, because I don't think that the market really knows quite how to describe these companies. And last year, this uncertainty about what kind of companies they are acted in their favour, because when the market was looking for a rapid reduction in interest rates, then they were perceived to be a good place to be because they are long duration assets uh, for which falling interest rates are, are a positive for valuation. But then later in the year, they were looked at as defensive stocks. And so I think that, you know, we don't really know whether they're growth or value defensive companies. So I think that the value growth debate rumbles on. And and I don't think that we have a particularly strong view either way on it. I think having a balanced portfolio, which includes both investment styles, probably continues to make sense because it comes and goes. Well, let's then now talk about investment trusts. Uh, Fidelity is an active player in the UK investment trust market, has uh, five investment trusts, including uh, recently taken on uh, an emerging markets mandate as well. So let's just talk about investment trusts in general, though, first of all. And, uh, you know, 2023 has, as I know well, because I track this market obviously every day, has been a fascinating year. We saw a significant derating in the first three quarters of the year. And then we saw a, a kind of a turnaround towards the end of the year. And the average discount sort of got back to roughly where it started at the beginning of the year, though not yet back to the levels that we saw at the start of 2022, in other words, 12 months before that. Is there anything more to say other than uh, this is mainly about interest rate expectations changing? It does seem to correlate very closely with uh, the change in expectations for where interest rates are heading. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately that's been the principal driver of this quite dramatic move in discounts out and then in again. Again, it's not something that we haven't seen before. Maybe we haven't seen it quite to the extent that we've seen it in the last two years. But I mean, that is one of the main attractions for maybe a slightly more sophisticated investor. The movement uh, in and out of discounts represents an opportunity. And quite clearly, I think many of us were saying three months or so ago that this was quite a rare opportunity to buy assets at less than their real value, less than their fundamental value. And sure enough, the movement was very swift and has been very swift, albeit not completed yet. So it wasn't the only reason, though, why the last couple of years have been difficult. And I know that you've been following closely the debate about disclosure of costs. And I think it's been a perfect storm, really, hasn't it? That it's been a combination of the interest rate question and the cost question, put it all together. And also there are other things as well. I mean, there's a propensity for investment trusts to be investing in some of the asset classes which are particularly vulnerable to interest rates. There have been a number of factors which have made it very difficult. Yes, they have. And it's difficult to disentangle them. I guess one thing that uh, I've commented on over the years is that 
You know, the cost disclosure issue is rather a complicated, opaque one, but it is really, uh, I'm not expecting you necessarily to say this, but um, it does sort of cast a light on the fact that investment trusts have been a little bit neglected by the regulators, shall we say. A lot of these regulations about cost go back to the EU, where we actually helped design the regulatory framework, but they haven't been kind of reformed or put right yet since we left Europe. And so it's a kind of rumbling on issue. And well, it needs to be resolved, does it not? I mean, I think to the extent it is important, it needs to be resolved sooner rather than later if we can. The government's made noises, the FCA has made noises, but we haven't actually seen the concrete proposals yet to change it. But of course, one other fact, perhaps I won't ask you to comment on that, but I'd say there's also been the impact of consumer duty this year, which is not unrelated to the cost issue in some respects. And we've seen platforms cancelling some investment trusts because of their perception that uh, they're too expensive or the costs are too high, among other factors. That's not a particularly sensible development, is it? I think the thing about consumer duty is that it obviously makes sense that everyone should be cognizant and focused on good outcomes for investors. Whether it's the right approach to shift the onus of responsibility for ensuring good outcomes to the providers of investments rather than the the investment sales is a moot point. You know, where should the ultimate responsibility for good outcomes lie? I mean, you can't remove the risk element from investments. That is the nature of investments. You don't want to remove it either, in the sense that uh, certain types of investment are riskier. And uh, if they deliver a poor outcome, then that doesn't necessarily mean they were a bad thing to have in the first place. They just... Uh they're offering potential and it's obviously giving capital to people to try and do something with. So yeah, I agree with you about that. So it is a difficult balance. We can all look back with hindsight and say that certain things that did happen shouldn't have happened, but um, very difficult to predict in advance what they're going to be. And the danger is you just end up with a kind of uniformity. Consumer choice gets affected by this concern with uh, consumer outcomes. You would agree with that? I absolutely would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you can't remove risk completely. And and as you say, nor should you want to remove it because that is the nature of the market. Indeed it is. So what are you expecting? Do you think this rally in investment trust can continue? Obviously, it depends a little bit what happens to interest rates this year. We've talked about that. But a lot of investment trusts are still trading at uh, certainly discounts that are wider than they have been until the last couple of years. But of course, before that, we also had a period when the discounts got very, very narrow generally. And that was maybe too much of a good thing. That was too much of a kind of bull market phenomenon. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a kind of halfway house situation between those two extremes at the moment. So just before I came on to talk to you, I had a look at the investment trust, which we have on our select 50 list of preferred funds. So about five of our 50 investments on on the Select 50R investment trusts. And they have quite a wide range of discounts ranging from 5% for the Schroeder Oriental Income Fund, all the way out to 37% for the Balanced Commercial Property Trust. Now, clearly, they're very different kinds of investment. Uh, One is significantly more illiquid than the other, but it does strike me that 37% discount for a, a real estate investment trust is still pretty wide. And I think the commercial property market in the UK is actually starting to look quite an interesting investment opportunity. I think we've, we've experienced this big downturn in in prices. It feels like that process is close to having run its course. And I think in an environment of falling interest rates, particularly if it veers more towards the soft landing than the recession outcome, actually will make real estate look look quite an interesting area. The other ones, we've got an infrastructure trust, International Public Partnerships Limited, 
Schroeder Japan and the Edinburgh Worldwide Investment Trust, which is run by Bailey Gifford, they're all in the sort of 10 to 13% discount, which sort of feels back to normal, if you like, compared to what we've had recently. Certainly back towards more normal levels for an equity investment trust, but slightly different perhaps for the alternatives, which are more interest rate sensitive. I think it's interesting the point you raised about commercial property, because it is interesting that the commercial property has re-rated sort of more quickly, if you like, than some of these other infrastructure trusts, which are more like kind of bond proxies that we know. And I guess that may be telling us something about what investors expect whether they're expecting inflation or a recession. Because you'd imagine that while infrastructure trusts are essentially sensitive to what's happening to bond yields, the property also is influenced not just by inflation, but also by economic growth. And maybe the market's just sensing a better outcome on the latter score. And that might help explain why uh, they've re-rated more quickly. Well, I think actually, I mean, coming back to our conversation at the beginning about the prospects for the markets, I think one of the key questions is what is the reason that inflation is falling so rapidly? Well, what is the reason that interest rates are going to come down? Is it because inflation is falling as a natural consequence of the year-on-year comparisons? Or is it falling because the economy is fundamentally moving into a worse, more recessionary outcome? So it's, it's not just that inflation is falling and that interest rates are likely to fall. It's the underlying reason for those falls that investors need to focus on, because that will ultimately will feed through into the prospects for earnings growth, which currently are pretty bullish. I mean, the expectations for earnings are still in the double digits for this year and next year. And I think that's the big question mark is whether that's really achievable. That sounds like a stretch to some of us anyway. So finally, Tom, I can do this question because I've been in a similar as myself. You've been writing about the markets now for, I don't know how long it is, but uh, a couple of decades at least. When I sat down to work out how many words I'd written for newspapers about the markets, I think I came up with a figure of somewhere between two and three million words. <laughs> and you must be getting on for the same number now. What have been your personal highlights? What were the things you're most proud of getting right? And what are the things you got most wrong? I can ask you to think back to all those millions of words that you've produced over the years. I think the hardest thing is being able to act on what you've said. I can remember we both knew and and indeed worked with Jim Slater, the late Jim Slater, from whom I learned a great deal uh, about investment. And I always remember him being challenged on something that he'd said about the markets. And someone said, yeah, well, it's easy to say that in hindsight. And, And Jim said, the difference between me and you is that I did it. And I thought that that was quite a profound point to make because it's very easy for for people like you and me to talk about the markets. But you mentioned Anthony Bolton before. One of the distinguishing features of an investor like uh, Anthony Bolton was that he had that ability to stand back from the shifts in sentiment and to actually make a decision and and act on it, as Jim did as well. So you asked me what I was most proud of. Well, I can remember at the bottom of the early pandemic panic, when markets fell very sharply in March 2020, I actually did act on that and thought, this is ridiculous. These markets have overreacted to this. And I actually did act on it. And and every time I look at that particular investment that I made in March 2020, I think, yes, I didn't just say it, I actually did it. I should have mentioned that context, actually. Um, Jim Slater, who had his strengths and weaknesses, shall we say, as an investor, we can't uh, gloss over that. He said he was always very influenced by Jimmy Goldsmith, who was another kind of flamboyant character back from the 80s in his case. 
And Jimmy Gelson always said, you know, when you were talking about the market, don't tell me what you think, tell me what you're doing. Much more important, you know, anybody can have an opinion, I'm afraid, and uh, the market's full of people who have opinions, who are paid to have opinions, if you like, without necessarily doing anything about it. But if you don't mind my asking this question, because people ask me this as well, what was the worst thing you've ever done, the most stupid thing you've ever done in investing, which you've learned from? I think the stupidest thing I did was probably in the in the dot-com bubble years. I allowed myself when I made money on a probably a highly speculative, I can't even remember what it was, a highly speculative investment and my money trebled in a short space of time, actually believing that I had been anything other than just lucky in that. And so I can remember ploughing back the money into an, another equally speculative investment, and it went down to uh, a third of its value. So I went from X to 3X and back to X in about six weeks. <laughs> so not knowing when to stop, I think, was probably my mistake. Yes, I always enjoy these uh, cases where people... Uh... You know, they come along and they tell you, well, I've done fantastically well out of whatever it is, you know, some specky little thing. And then about a year later, you don't hear them talking about it. You don't hear them talking about it at all. It's sort of been yes, raised I'm, from their memory. <laughs> I'm having some interesting conversations at the moment with my 23-year-old son about his Bitcoin investments. And, uh, of course, he's very clever at the moment. He's laughing at you now. Yeah, exactly. You told me it was all nonsense. <laughs> but look at me. I've made so much. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we all have to go through that. Very good. So that was Tom Stevenson, Investment Director at Fidelity International, talking to me about the markets and some other stuff, which we've been talking about now for going on 20 years or so. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.